You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 583 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, and I know I told you a couple days ago we only have no podcasts. Then we had one emergency podcast on Thursday evening, and now it's Friday night, and Jeff Siegel is joining me to wrap up and go deep a little bit deeper on the Torian Prince trade. So uh, welcome, Jeff. Uh, hello. How are you? I'm great. I uh, We're just going to wing it here on a Friday night. And it's going to be interesting because, you know, I covered a lot of ground yesterday on the podcast. You wrote, actually, the definitive Torian Prince take on Thursday evening. Uh, I'm kidding about that, but it was it worked out really well. They posted posted Friday morning on PeachTroops.com. So we, we've both been talking about this online and offline for like 24 hours now. And I feel like we should talk about it in podcast form. So the particulars, if you missed this, uh, I would definitely recommend going back and listening to the previous podcast for like the uh, the high-level version of this, the quick version with just me by myself rambling. But the Hawks traded Torian Prince in a 20, 2021 second-round pick to Brooklyn for Alan Crabb, the 17th pick in this year's draft, a lottery-protected 2020 pick. Um, and, you know, a lot of, I, I won't say too split, I think for the most part, the reaction has been pretty positive to this trade for the Hawks. But uh, what was your initial reaction to this move, other than to alert me that it happened? <laughs> and uh, were, has anything changed in the last 24 hours for you? Uh, I mean, I think my initial reaction was that it was a positive trade for Atlanta. And then the more you sort of think about it, the more you look at, at Crab's individual history, the fact that he was so bad last year, but was, you know, relatively useful the, the two years before that, it becomes, you know, I think it becomes a little bit better because Crab, you know, assuming his, his health comes back to where it was, you know, two years ago, can be a, a really useful player. This is not taking on Miles Plumley's contract. This is not taking on like Bismack Biombo or Timothy Mozgov. Like this is a, a relatively useful player, somebody who can be a rotation player for the Hawks if they want to, or somebody who they could buy out and be a rotation player elsewhere. Um, you know, but it's, it's from a value perspective. I think it got better when, uh, as you sort of, sort of think about what crab was, you know, a couple years ago, three years ago versus, uh, you know, what he was last year. Yeah, that's that's probably the case. We can talk about Prince a little bit as well, and then we're going to look forward, of course. But, you know, Crab, it's interesting, the comparisons that you're pointing out there to some guys who are, you know, virtually all dead money. Alan Crab is not all dead money. He's obviously, you know, violently overpaid at $18.5 million. But in addition to it not being uh, a day just full-on disaster, it's a one-year contract. Um, it's expiring. The Braves, sorry, the Braves, the Hawks taking on this bad money and, you know, intentionally, you know, this is, there's also some foreshadowing to this just, just a few days ago with some reporting that was out there that the Bra that the Hawks were going to be in the, in the market for all this. And they went ahead and did it faster. Uh, I listened to a couple of podcasts in response to this in national shows and kind of made light of the fact that you never see trades like this in early June. Like every once in a while you'll get a trade like, you know, the, the week of the draft, but having a having a trade like this drop two full weeks before the draft 
is pretty insane. It kind of lends itself to some more d- dynamics in play for Brooklyn than anything else, but the Hawks had to be there and be willing to go ahead and take Alan Crabb on, and uh, the Nets angle is secondary on this podcast, obviously, but interesting the dynamics on that, on that side of things as well, but you know, in terms of Alan Crabb, he can play. He's a rotation-level player. Whether he actually plays for the Hawks, as you mentioned, is up in the, up in the air. I'm assuming he's going to be on the roster. It would kind of surprise me a little bit if they bought him out um, before the season started anyway, because like we said, he is kind of useful. So, and I can't imagine him giving back enough money to make it make it worth it for the Hawks. In my opinion, um, he'd have to give back a significant sum for me to be willing to go ahead and buy him out now because he can play. So, all that to say, obviously he's not the biggest part of this of this trade, and he just taking him on is the negative part. Um, if you want to think about it that way, but. Let's talk about um, Torian Prince a little bit before we move on to all the Hawks stuff, because Torian is, of course, the biggest name in the deal um, for, from the Hawks standpoint. And, you know, you and I talked about him a ton on this podcast. We've written about him extensively. We talked about him on Twitter. Um, you wrote something, I think, in like late April about Torian, how he still had trade value, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what do you think about... I guess people were terming this as like giving up on Torian Prince, which I'm not really willing to say. It was more of a value proposition for me, at least in the way that I'm evaluating this. But what was the Torian uh, reaction for you? And how did you see them in terms of just getting value back for trading him? I mean, I thought that this was, you know, relatively close to his his value. Like we, we would have conversations about whether he was worth a first round pick, whether he could grab, you know, the 12th pick in the draft, which he was in 2016. And this won't obviously be the 12th pick in the draft because it's a lottery protected, you know, 2020 pick. And obviously the one that's already coming is number 17. We know that. So, you know, he's not going to fetch the exact pick that he was taken with, but of course, you know, they got three years of, of play out of him and he, you know, his value is going to drop as his rookie contract sort of, you know, goes along. And so for, to get, you know, to get a essentially, a first round pick in this deal for Prince. It's, it's sort of how you split it up, how you split up the value between what they got for taking on crab versus what they got for sending out Prince. It's, you know, where, how, which first counts for Prince, where does the, you know, the second round pick where, you know, which side of the ledger does that, you know, sit on. So, you know, it's a little more complicated than just straight up Tory and Prince for a first round pick, but he's, he has, uh, you know, he had strong value. I thought going into the the trade market this summer, that's what I wrote about uh, in in April. I thought that he, you know, as a six foot eight guy who can shoot, like just that archetype from a big picture perspective, is going to be a valuable, you know, a valuable piece on the trade market. Like that's just that archetype is very difficult to find. That kind of player is very difficult to find. So he was always going to have some value. I thought that he was going to be worth a first round pick. You know, whether this is technically him being worth a first round pick or, you know, a first minus the value of that 2021 second is sort of, you know, in the eye of the beholder, whether you feel, you know, how you feel about Alan Crabb and how you feel about Torian Prince is going to color, you know, how you split up the the, the draft pick compensation here. But, you know, he's he's you know, he's a frustrating player when you you know, when you watch him every night, of course, like that's the that's the downside to Prince is that he's, you know, he, he's very fr- like he's frustrating. Like we've talked about this extensively. <laughs> he's a difficult player to watch at night in and night out. But from a sort of 10,000 foot view, you know, from 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 the bird's eye view, he's he just has the the outline of such an important player in today's NBA that uh, that, I, that I I thought and still think that, that a first round pick sounds sounds about right for him. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it became very clear over the last day or so. I think we already knew this, at least you and I did, in talking offline, that the you know sort of the league in general and people that cover the league nationally even are higher on Torian Prince than people that cover him every single day, and that comes with the territory um, for him because of the fact that his weaknesses um, are magnified when you watch him more and more. Um, you know, just the archetype as you referenced, and as I've said numerous times, even in the last day and even well before that, the archetype of a player who's six eight and can shoot 39% from three is valuable, as you point out. Um, if you ignore the stuff that lessens that value, uh, at least largely, you know, there's been the, the notion that he's this 3 and D player, and um, if you assume he can play defense, that's that's certainly a way you could describe Torian Prince. The defense the last two years has not been up to the 3 and D standard. Um, and, you know, the, re- the rebounding, I made a uh, just a little il- illustration on Twitter on Friday morning about Torian Prince's rebounding, the fact that he was out-rebounded by a bunch of point guards this season on a, on a rate basis. He had the same defensive rebound rate as Jalen Adams. It's a legitimate weakness for him. And without litigating all the Torian Prince stuff, I think his value in the league, and we knew this, is higher than what we would have personally evaluated him as. But we knew that, and we built it in, and I'm not surprised that he got a first-round pick back. You know, the notion that he's supposed to return the same value as he got drafted at, um, number one... Yes, he was number. He was a, he was a lottery pick, quote unquote, number twelve overall pick. That that draft was terrible. Twenty sixteen is like a famously terrible draft. And going into that draft, he was uh, actually considered to be a bit of a reach when he was drafted at twelve. Um, that's some stuff that you will only remember if you were around. But um, you know, I already I already don't like the comparison of uh, draft slot over years. But just some context there. That was a really bad draft, and he was considered to be a reach. I didn't mind that pick. It actually worked out quite well for the Hawks if you evaluate the rest of that draft. But um, getting pretty good value for him three years later after, you know, I would argue at least the last year and a half, two years, he has kind of been frustrating to the point of underachieving, not overachieving. The shooting is the one thing that he has not certainly underachieved at. He's been quite good as a shooter. Everything else though has been somewhat disappointing. So all that to say, I think it's appropriate value for him. I think the Nets are going to get a player that they could certainly maximize. You know, Kenny Atkinson and his crew have been very good. Um, I think Kenny is obviously someone who I covered here, and he's a good guy, and I think he's a very good basketball coach. That's a good system for Torian to be in. Um, we'll see if he tries on defense. That's kind of the, that's kind of the big swing for Prince. But at a minimum, even if he's just the same player he was in Atlanta, he is obviously worth more than the contract that he's going to be given in year four. It's not he's he's paid very little, and then the decision comes next summer when he is uh, a free agent, which the Hawks did not want to do, seemingly. That was kind of the obvious overarching thing for people like you and I, is that, look, the Hawks just didn't want to pay Torian Prince. That's what it seems like. He's been on the market for a year, and they got value, and that's kind of the easiest way to put this. They, they traded someone that they didn't want to necessarily overpay or be forced to overpay next summer, and they did it a year early, and that's something that I always like to praise when you get value for a guy. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's better to get rid of a guy a year early than get rid of a guy a year late or get stuck with him on a on a contract that you don't like if he you know hits restricted free agency and gets 18, 20 million a year. Like that would be you mean not... you mean like like, like Tim Hardaway Jr. for instance? Yeah, like that would be, uh, that's exactly who I was sort of thinking about in in that sense is that you know Tim Hardaway Jr. was in the same spot where the Hawks traded for him with two years left on that contract uh, with on his rookie contract and then. Uh, watched him walk away for nothing and like that's that's giving up on it that's basically acquiring a guy too late misevaluating his value within the league i mean that was that trade was was totally bad at the beginning and and just got worse as time went yeah it's it's also the risk and this is not tomorrow jr's fault he got overpaid violently and everybody knew it 
um, except for the Knicks, apparently, because even people that were high on him knew that was a overpay for him. Um, but that's that's one of the risk points when you allow a guy to get to restricted free agency. Sometimes it works out great, and that the market can squeeze a guy. That happens pretty regularly in restricted free agency, where guys end up taking far less than they're actually worth because the market just dries up. But the other side is, if you get a guy that gets overpaid by one team and you don't want to match that, then you lose him for nothing, which is part of the reason why the Hawks may have made this trade. Because if you get to, I mean, they clearly were not going to extend Torian Prince. So a year from now, if he had a similar season and a team came calling with a big ticket offer, you know, generally it's probably better to let him go than to overpay. But if you don't get anything for him, it, it kind of leaves a, a, a sour taste in your mouth. Obviously, everyone agreed with, with the Hawks' decision not to match on Tim Hardaway Jr., but if you step back a little bit and, and relitigate that, losing an asset, which is what he was, for nothing, is not great. And then the Hawks have done it several other times in different situations with Paul Millsap, for instance, and you know Al Horford at the time. Obviously, that was the one that was more difficult, but et cetera, et cetera. It's not, it's, it's not a new concept, I think. And this time, with a new front office, they were just more proactive. And the Nets are buying, uh, I don't want to say buying low, but they're getting a guy who is underpaid right now on a rookie contract because he brings a real skill to the table and he could grow. I mean, he has he has tools enough to play solid defense and if you can get that out of him, he becomes a potential starter for them. And that's really useful in addition to the obvious ramifications for Brooklyn of getting off Alan Krabs' contract. Cuz that's that's kind of the thing here. I tweeted this during the day. I think you agree, but I'll ask you anyway. You know, the notion of who wins a kind of trade like this is just maddening to me. You don't have to win. It's not a it's not a team versus team situation. These two teams had very different objectives with this trade. The Hawks wanted to add assets, and the Nets wanted to clear cap space. And both teams, um, you know, were able to achieve that. It didn't have to be this elaborate. It could have just been crab for a pick and made it a lot easier to evaluate, I suppose. But you know, big picture wise, I think both teams did well here. And Brooklyn, we won't know necessarily until we know what they, what they did with their cap space. But guess what? Uh, both teams are allowed to do well in the same trade. It's it's allowed. Yeah, I mean, both teams are allowed to do well in the same trade, but this is this is one of those trades that is so dependent on the rest of the offseason. Like this it really is, is. The, this is the first domino, and if you, yeah, you know, if you if there's a, a domino, whatever you know, those little like designs that people make with thousands of dominoes on the floor. If you just judge the entire artwork on the first domino that falls, you'd be like, well, that was stupid. Like, what's the point of this? But then if you watch the rest of the dominoes fall, all of a sudden the sort of the bigger picture comes into view and you go, oh, okay, like that was the point of the first domino. Uh, that's what this sort of trade is for both teams. You know, the, 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 the Nets really created this extra cap space, did not have to do this to get Kyrie Irving, but did have to do this if they want Kyrie Irving and Chris Middleton or Tobias Harris or somebody like that. They, they were going to need a second slot. And this is, you know, this is a trade that creates a second slot for them if they want to obviously move on from D'Angelo Russell. If they don't want to move on from Russell, they've got some extra cap space to play with on top of being able to bring Russell back. And and that's a whole thing. We can get into that, you know, on a, on a different podcast. I don't think we need to get into the <laughs> net side of this right now. But yeah. That's what the Nets are thinking, you know, behind making a trade like this. That's what the Nets are thinking behind getting off of Alan Crabb. Obviously, getting Torian Prince is a young, cost-controlled asset for next year who they can – if they want to overpay next summer, if, the, if their summer goes right this year, then they've got a bunch of contracts on the books for next year and they're going to be over the cap and it won't matter if he gets slightly overpaid. If he – if you have to pay him – $18 million a year versus if you could squeeze him and get him to 13 or $14 million a year, it's not as big a deal for a, for a Nets team that's going to be over the cap anyway this time next year 
if everything goes well for them in terms of their free agency, they're going to be over the cap. They don't next, you know, that extra four or five million dollars that they're going to need to pay Prince every year is not as big a deal as it would be to a team like Atlanta, who is going to be point. looking to use their cap space in a big way over the next few years. Prince, his timeline of hitting free agency just didn't quite line up with their with the time that they want to spend heavily. You know, will that same timeline line up for a guy like John Collins, who was drafted a year later? Maybe we'll see where they are this time next year and what they, you know, what they look like going into the the summer of 2020. And then obviously you get into, you know, Trey Young, Kevin Herter, those guys free agency in 2022. We won't know about that for a little while, but at some point Atlanta's going to want to spend, but it was not this summer. This was not the summer for them to do that. It's probably going to be next summer or the summer after. And so that's where... That's why Prince had a little bit less value to Atlanta. He was going to get paid before they were ready to shell out a ton of money for other guys. But for Brooklyn, they're going to shell out money this summer. And by the time Prince becomes a free agent next summer, it doesn't it doesn't affect them as much to overpay him to stay around, whether that's on a on an offer sheet or just, you know, to just just in a in a in a contract agreed to by both sides. So I think that's that's sort of the Brooklyn thinking behind this and, and part of the Atlanta thinking in terms of of getting rid of Prince again with with the same sort of thing of Atlanta wants to take on money this year to that expires and so that they can use a lot of cap space next year or the year after crab fits that bill perfectly 18 and a half million dollars but it expires after this year and you know they picked up a couple of firsts one for crab one for Prince however you want to talk about that uh, they picked up a couple of firsts in the deal as they continue to sort of add young talent over these next few years to supplement some of the high-end spending that they eventually would like to do in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, it's a great point and one that's uh, more nuanced than most are going to get on, on the situation. I just think that, you know, Prince could work out in Brooklyn and it's they won't be a Hawks evaluation beyond today, frankly, um, but at least, at least on this podcast. But it's just one of those things where all of the different factors lead toward this being a deal that makes sense. You know, getting off of Prince money net because you know if he, if if you if his cap space would have been effective next summer, Brooklyn can use him kind of and max him out in a certain way um, financially as well as on the court. The Hawks get an asset, etc. I mean, it's 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 a really nuanced thing and difficult thing to talk about with people that aren't necessarily fully plugged in here. But because it's all asset driven, it's not really on the court. Because obviously, I'm not even sure I have to say this, but I'll say it anyway. Alan Crabb is not as good as Torian Prince at basketball. Let me just say that out loud. So uh, without anybody getting uh, misconstrued here, clearly Torian Prince is better than Alan Crabb. So on the court right now today, the Hawks are worse, I suppose. But asset sheet-wise, it's clearly not even particularly close, in my opinion. I love this trade for the Hawks, and um, it also makes sense for the Nets. So it's the it's the rare win-win if the Nets use that cap space, which we, we will not cover the Nets, as you, as you said. But um, for now, it makes sense on both sides. And honestly, for the Hawks, you know, Ramification-wise, there really isn't anything that could make this worse on the Hawks side. Am I wrong about that? In terms of just of the evaluation of the deal, obviously the Nets contingent is is all contingent on what happens this summer. The Hawks are kind of just they're not done, but you know, short of Kevin Durant saying I want to go to the Hawks and announcing that on on Instagram like Sunday on, on Sunday, the use of that cap space probably doesn't really hurt the Hawks. Um, so anything else would be uh, kind of static, and I think we could kind of evaluate the Hawks kind of where they are now. Yeah, I mean, I think the the one aspect of this for the Hawks, obviously, the, the cap space is not as big a deal for them to lose about seventeen million in cap space between the difference between Crab and 
uh, Prince's contracts plus the first round pick that they picked up at number 17 is about $17 million. Losing that kind of cap space is not a big deal for the for the sort of return that they got to uh, to take on that that extra money. That's not as big a deal unless, of course, somebody says, hey, I'd like to come play with Trey Young right now, which seems unlikely. It seems like they would have done you know a little bit more of their homework. And, and if somebody had been out there who at least would have been interested, you hold off on making a deal like this. And, and they're not until- going to do I mean, that, that's the thing about this is that even all the people that are plugged in that I listened to or read today between Woj and everybody else, it was just the realization that the Hawks were not going to sign someone for $35 million. So that's why, I mean, everyone kind of agreed the Hawks were, I guess, the only team in the entire league that is definitely going to be in the use of cash space for assets mode. And I think basically everyone that I heard that is sort of an insidery kind of person said the same thing to where it's very clear the Hawks had no designs on spending, you know, 60 million in cash space or whatever, whatever, whatever could have been if they got, if they got weird, 45 million in cash space, they were never going to sign a big ticket player like that. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. And so this solidifies that on that front, because this is a, a use of about $17 million of their cap space. The one aspect of this that does make it more difficult to assess right now is that now the Hawks have six draft picks in a, in a draft that they already have said <laughs> they don't want five draft picks. And I assume that wasn't because they wanted more. It's because they wanted fewer. I will I will say so this just as, as a small clarification. Schlick has not said he does not want five draft picks. He said, he's, he, he, said, he, said he does not want five rookies for tra- like when training camp opens, which is an important, albeit small, distinction. And I, I, they're not going to make six picks. I'm very sure of that. But they don't, you know, people keep saying this. I know you and I talk about this. I just want to say this out loud before I forget to say it. Um, adding extra assets is never a bad thing. Whether whether they trade them or not now, which seems to be likely that they're going to make at least one or two trades in the next couple of weeks here, getting the asset does not make the asset any worse. I know they don't want they don't want six rookies, they don't want five rookies, but the asset's still the asset, and now you can use it for something else. Just because they didn't quote need more draft picks end quote does not mean this this, this was not a smart trade because I got, I got some of that in in response to yesterday's podcast and what we wrote and what we said on Twitter is like oh they have they already have so many picks. Well, guess what? Having another pick is still good because it's an asset. If nothing else, they don't have to draft someone with that pick but they can trade that pick they can package picks the asset is still the asset even if they're not going to use all six of them yes i think i mean there are diminishing returns say, i i would agree but yeah, at the same time was, but at the same that, time that you, the, you the can trade it use. you can trade it though i mean it's i, yeah. I understand that, you that would be that's this. where that's where we have to sort of see them swing the bat all the way around is we've seen them start to swing the bat and if they can swing it all the way around and, and package some of these picks or even just take two of them and trade for future picks that would be ideal that would be what they're sort of of looking for in terms of absolutely maximizing the six draft pick assets they have adding the sixth pick has a little bit of of diminishing returns in that taking you know if you get stuck with all six picks it can be a problem you know the the guys who they take at 41 and 44 if they have no real leads on dumping some of these picks they might go out of their way to take draft and stash guys when they could have had better you know sort of better assets better players at uh, at 41 and 44 or wherever they end up with those last you know with those last two picks I'm, I'm not i wouldn't think that it's something that would change how i think of the trade overall but it is something that this is a piece of the puzzle in a bigger picture and now they just sort of have this extra asset that they do need to figure out what to do with like it is it is something where there's some 
there is some diminishing returns to having a sixth pick in a draft where you don't necessarily even want five picks. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think that they could very easily move any of these assets if it came down to it. And the stat, you know, especially when you get into 41-44, the guys they'd be stashing are equivalent prospects to the guys that they'd be drafting, frankly. So if it gets to this point and they draft four guys in the top 35 and they say, all right, that's it, we're taking two stashes, the guys they're stashing would be very similar prospects, at least in my evaluation, unless something gets very weird. And for me... I know what Schlenk said out loud. I would not have made it as definitive as he did to not bring five rookies in because I think there's there are scenarios where you just make the five picks and bring them in because the Hawks have roster spots. Roster spots are not really a problem for this team at the moment with where they are on their development curve, but I get it, and he's now said it on the record so many times that they're not going to have five rookies. Um, that's pretty clear. Um, but, you know, we. And by the way, we're going to save this for a part two on the same podcast. It's going to air in a couple of days about the draft specifically and when we're going to actually get into some players and discuss that. But value-wise, it's very interesting just because this draft is not very good. And that's a, that's a point that everybody keeps trying to make that doesn't like the deal as much as perhaps I do. Um, that, you know, the 17th pick in this draft is not that valuable. Uh, I tend to agree this draft is not great, but... In the same vein, seven. Once you get to seventeen, I don't think there's a huge difference between seventeen in this draft and, and, and other drafts that have been recently. Um, normally, I think the drop off point is a little bit higher than that. Like for instance, last year's draft, I think the drop off point for me after for last year was like at like twelve or thirteen. Um, this year, it's more like I don't know eight, <laughs> or and then there's a tier after that. It's it's just kind of a weird dynamic. But seventeen. Is not exactly. I would say that, in my opinion, seventeen in this draft is not markedly worse than seventeen in a normal draft. Um, that's not the weakness of this draft in the middle. The, the, the weakness of this draft is like, for me, it's three through like twelve. That's the weakness. It's not. It's not that far down. So, just asset wise, this is my opinion only. But I think the seventeenth pick is a very strong asset. It's not a. It's not an elite asset, but it's one that is very valuable, and we see that just by the fact that the Nets were willing to give that up in this deal. Like it's clearly, it's clearly that they, you know, they want to get out that money desperately and the Hawks were able to take advantage of that. And they were the only team in the league that could have basically could have made this trade right now without any thought process in doing so. That's really useful. And it puts the Hawks in a nice position. I know that having six picks is not great, but as we even saw last year, we saw, you know, they, they were able to trade the 34th pick last year for two picks in the future. That's what it comes down to as well. I think for instance, 35 in this draft if they if they stay pat if they, if they stay pat and draft 30 and draft three guys in the first round they could pretty easily get off of 35 for future picks if they want to do that and you know they did it once already and I hated it last year this year I don't make more sense frankly but you know all the doors are open it's really tough to discuss though that's kind of what the point you were making too is that you know fully analyzing the draft right now is basically impossible right for the Hawks because Pretty much no one that I've talked to, and maybe you've heard something different in uh, in your circles, no one believes that a likely scenario is them staying is them standing pat. Like no one. Yeah, and I think that's where I get off. That's where I am coming from when I say that this is a a one. This is one piece of the bigger picture. Is like what comes next. If nobody expects them to stand pat, then what comes next and what they end up getting for 17 or what they are able to move as a result of having number 17, all of that stuff becomes interconnected with this trade. And so, you know, in terms of, of evaluating this trade in the, in the grand scheme of their off season, it's going to be a, a, a pivotal point of the off season and, and how they structure 
their draft assets, whether they're more willing to trade number 10 now that they have number 17. If they end up making a trade with number 10 that doesn't even involve number 17, it still affects how they treated number 10. So it's all it's all connected. And that's sort of what I was I was getting out with with having the extra assets and the, the somewhat diminishing returns, but also the new flexibility that they have to trade eight and 10 to do something if they wanted to. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend they trade eight and 10 to try to move up, but they can do that because they've got the extra asset at number 17. So they have lots of different ways that they can go about this. And it's, it's going to be sort of one piece of the, of a much larger puzzle. Yeah. And I agree um, that, you know, the evaluation overall will include whatever happens in the draft. I do think though, that there is some value to evaluating the trade as the trade like right now, um, just because, you know, packaging picks is get, it gets, it can get kind of sticky and I understand all that, but at the same time, you're, you're making the trade you just made. Um, and that is one transaction, which, which can be evaluated on its own. and also should be taken in the, in the, in the full context as well. And we'll, and we'll do that down the line. Once we see what the Hawks do with these picks, by the way, and you know, the most likely scenario is that a trade happening on draft night rather than before. It's not impossible that, that they were to make a trade before that, but uh, you know, between now and the draft, the most likely day to draft uh, to make a trade is draft day. So we'll have some uncertainty for you know 13 days now, but I do think that um, you know both both are true. You, you can you can evaluate this transaction how it is right now, and then you can evaluate this this transaction in the grand scheme of what they end up doing with 17 and packaging or moving down or whatever they want to do. Because even the reporting after this was that the Hawks are still willing to move down, which is going to surprise some people, I think. But um, I think moving down is the is the is the move in this draft in general. It's tougher to do now when you already have six picks because most of the time, um, you know, that's just a tough sell. But it doesn't have to be picks in this draft. It could be, a, you know, you can go from ten to twelve and get a future asset. Like the stuff, the kind of stuff they did last year, um, is on the table. Is all I'll say. Um, before we get to some draft stuff, like that's more detail on players and such like and such like that, I wanted to ask you specifically. I know we referenced it a little bit, but the cast base the Hawks still have um, about twenty six million or so. Is that what we what, what we think it is right now? I'll, I'll ask you, the cap expert. Um, I think that's right. Somewhere yeah, we're we're they've got roughly twenty six million left over. And you know, with with that, obviously, there's a lot of moving parts there. What, part of that could be Dwayne Debin, for instance. There was some reporting that the Hawks want to bring him back. Um, what would you? I know it's very early, and things are going to change after the draft. But if you're Travis Schlank right now, what do you sort of envision using that money on? Is it is it is it bargain? Is it bargains on the free agent market? Is it doing another one of these salary cap dump trades? Is it Dwayne Dedman? Like in theory, big picture, what do you think the best use of that cap space could be? Should it be carried in the next season as an option as well? The way the Kings did this year, for instance, uh, what what would you do uh, at least for now? In your, what, what would your plan be with, with that cap space? I mean, certainly, if you can pick up future assets, if you can pick up more draft assets for for you know salary dumps that make sense for you, especially guys who can fill some of the holes in in, in the roster, as you'll find out what your holes are. You know, as we get closer to the season, like I think backup point guard would be a, a nice place to look if, if there's a team that is looking to get off of a backup point guard who makes a lot of money and 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 the Hawks want to to take that on. That would be that would be good. Certainly, if they if they end up moving away from Dwayne Dedman, if they if there was a big man out there who had some modicum of value. I'm not talking about like a Bismack Biombo or a Timothy Mozgov, but somebody who had some value but was still overpaid. Tristan Thompson perhaps comes in comes into consideration at that point. Hassan Whiteside makes too much money to make sense with the cap space that they have left, but he's sort of 
a guy who is wildly overpaid, and he also has an extra year, I believe. No, this is his player option year. Yeah. So it's just the one year, but it's at like $28 million. So they've got, they don't have enough space for that right now, but they could send out a guy who makes a little bit of money and take on Hassan Whiteside with like two first round picks or something like that for Miami. If Miami is interested in doing that, those are the sorts of things that, that you could look to do like they did with crab, like they did with Jeremy Lin last year, you know, not like they did with, with Jamal Crawford or, or Carmelo Anthony, where those guys were immediately bought out and moved on. But a guy like Jeremy Lin, who was brought in as a, as a, as bad salary last year, Alan crab is brought in as bad salary this year. Those guys were not, so much bad salary that you had to get rid of them immediately or that they were just taking up room on the bench. Those guys can play. And so if you can bring in similar players like that, where teams have to get off of money, but it's, but you can bring somebody in who makes sense on the roster as a backup point guard, a backup center, anybody on the wing. I mean, you can never have an, you can never have too many wings. You know, if they, even if they draft wings at eight and 10, you can still never have too many wings in the, in this NBA, you know? So if, I think those are the, those are the sorts of trades that I would be looking for outside of that. If there are, you know, if those trades don't exist, then it's really just about trying to find cracks in the market, guys who fall through the cracks, who are good players who can fill some of those roles again, backup point guard, backup center, and, you know, maybe even starting center if Dwayne Dedman moves on. But, you know, a, a center timeshare between Collins, Len, and whoever you would pick up, you know, I think those, and, and then, of course, wings, any wing who falls through the cracks and wants, you know, a, a small contract would be would be perfectly fine for, for, for an Atlanta team who can just take swings on guys and can take lots of little swings. You know, you don't want to over overdo it in terms of, you know, you, you only have 15 roster spots, but... You can. I think those are the sorts of, of moves that they can make. Yeah, and that makes uh, perfect sense. And you know, it's 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 hard when people ask what you know, sort of definitively what the, what the Hawks might do, or like the, especially the players that the Hawks might target in free agency. And it's like, well, Schlenk's now said repeatedly again this year that they're not going to be the first out of the gate probably in free agency. It's going to be a value proposition, and it's basically who can we get for less than we think that they're, that they're actually worth. You know, last year it was you know, it was Alex Lynn kind of fell on their lap, for instance. It's those it's those little values that they, that you can find that sort of fit the timeline, perhaps. In ter- if you're ter- this isn't just in terms of signing players because they'll probably sign someone. I'm not sure who it's going to be. Um, there are guys out there that might make sense, like Kavon Looney or whoever else. Um, cheaper. Cheaper potential options who can give you value, they're actually still pretty young, um, are generally what I'd be looking for in terms of just signing players, but all those options are still on the table. And uh, by the way, as I tweeted earlier, currently the Hawks do not have a single small four on the roster. And that makes things interesting. Yeah, I mean, they they certainly can look to to fill that hole in the draft. I mean, the, the fact that they're going to be... They're going it, to. Right, as of now, <laughs> they're going to, you know, they should be able to fill that hole really easily at 8, 10, or 17, or at least two of those three spots, depending on, you know, if they end up picking in those spots. But the, there are going to be forward, you know, guys who can who can definitely play the three and who might be able to play the four. There are going to be guys at the, at the you know, 8, 10, 17 spots. I mean, every, every mock draft, every time we sort of look through our own draft boards, like those are the guys who, who may be available there, whether they want to package and try to move up from, you know, from 10 to five and try to grab like a DeAndre Hunter or a Jared Culver, like that's a, that's a, those guys are also wings. You know, Culver might be a little bit smaller for, for a three, but obviously Hunter, you know, Cam Reddish, Nasir Little, like those guys are, are definitely threes. And so like there, there are going to be, 
whether those guys are starter level threes immediately, that sort of remains to be seen. Like that could be that could be a bit of a hole for them, uh, you know, going into the season if they if they decide to go that route. But you know, if they if they decide to go with a a rookie, you know, small forward, then there are going to be you know free agent forwards who sort of you know fall through the cracks who can come in and start the first couple months of the season be sort of that veteran presence and then you know move on as soon as the rookie is is ready to come in yep that makes perfect sense and we'll talk more about the draft in a few minutes when we uh, take this thing to a part two but before we get out of this particular uh, evaluation mode of this trade I want your sort of big picture evaluation. Mine, mine has been that I just I love this move. It's not an A plus 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 no brainer or anything like that. I mean, for me, it's kind of a no brainer. But I think it's not a grand slam, but it's a very good trade and one that I would do without hesitation if I was if I was the Hawks. Uh, what do you, what what is your sort of final 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 eval of the of this Torian Prince trade before we move on to everything else? I mean, I think. You know, obviously, the the biggest worry is going to be in the the biggest asset that you give up, and and Torian Prince is certainly the best player in this deal. And for from that perspective, it's a little bit it, it makes me a little bit queasier just because he we sort of had a better idea of what he is than obviously we have of what the first round picks are going to be coming back. He's the the potential was there for a guy who is a six foot eight shooter who, when the team was competitive, was a good defender two years ago. Could he recapture that? Is it even possible for him to recapture that in Atlanta or did he have to sort of move on to recapture that? Obviously, Brooklyn is sort of betting that he can recapture that and they've got a ton of inside knowledge with their assistant GM being the Hawks assistant GM for like the last seven years. They've got Kenny Atkinson who didn't overlap with Prince at all in terms of their time together in Atlanta, but Prince can, or, but Atkinson can clearly call up Budenholzer, call up Chris Gent, who was still on the staff this past year. He, he can, he can get a, a good evaluation of who Prince is as a person, whether he's going to be able to step up to the challenge of, of playing for what is now at least a playoff team going into next year, but with, you know, with some moves might be, I mean, depending on what happens in the East, like they could be the second best team in the East next season. Like B- Brooklyn is not Brooklyn is not Atlanta over the last two years. Like Brooklyn, Torian Prince is stepping into a Brooklyn team that is very good and has very high end aspirations and will only get higher end as they, you know, sign Kyrie Irving and perhaps another guy like they're He's stepping into a, a very different team than he's ever played for before, but it's whether the effort level comes back on the defensive end, whether he can get in on the glass a little bit better, whether he can cut out some of the the frustrating offensive issues for him. The fact that he turned the ball over so much, despite being not a particularly good or willing passer, was always maddening. Like, how did he rack up so many turnovers when he didn't really pass the ball that much anyway? <laughs> like, that was always something that I never understood. Is like, he you could point out two, three possessions a game where he was a ball stopper. And yet he still like almost led the league and, and or led the, the team in turnovers. And so, you know, it was very, he's a frustrating player, but on a team where he's asked to do less offensively and asked to do more defensively because there's more accountability and the team is winning. There's, there's a chance that value comes around and he is a very, very high end starting level player who's worth, 15, 18, $20 million a year. So, you know, the giving up on that as the Hawks, when the team might be good within the next two, three years is a little, just, you know, does make me a little bit queasy. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. If if it worked out perfectly for Prince, you would not love that as the Hawks. I will say I have uh, very little faith that he would have done that in Atlanta. Um, just because of the fact that we, we just saw it for two years. I had some faith in the second season with a new regime and a new sort of fresh start that he would play defense again, and it, it just didn't happen this year. Uh, maybe it's that he needs to be playing a situation that's um, you know a playoff team, more competitive. But for me, it isn't the greatest indicator if a guy has to be put in a great situation to play defense. And that's a simplification, but it's also a frustrating one to where if he had a great year this year in Brooklyn – um, in a contract year, would that assuage any thought that I would have of giving him a bunch of money and have him go back to where he was not playing defense again? It certainly would not. Um, so I, I get it. I think there is certainly a scenario where uh, we are hearing from Hawks fans in six months about how about how good Torian Prince is playing in Brooklyn. That would not surprise me all that much because he does have talent and the shooting is legit and he's had nice flashes in his Hawks career. But in terms of evaluating the trade, I think he's a pretty classic change of scenery guy. I think it might work out in Brooklyn, but I don't think it would have worked out any, any maybe not any differently, much differently than it did in Atlanta. Maybe maybe he would have improved a little bit, but he's also not that young. He's 25 already, and that's not old, but it isn't that young. Um, so all that to say, I think it's a good deal for the Hawks. I think it is one that I don't have any problem praising. I think for me, it's this. It's probably my second favorite trade of the Travis Schlenk era behind the Dennis Schroeder trade, which I thought was an absolute A-plus, um, and still do. That, that that trade looks even better now than it did then. Um, we're, I mean, it's sort of t- difficult because there haven't been that many trades, but do you agree with that? Is there anything that you would put ahead of it on the during the Travis Schlenk era? This is, this is not draft picks, just, just trades. Trades only. I love the Dennis Schroeder trade. That was an A-plus. This one's like an A-minus. Um, anything else for you that's on that level? Because I, I haven't loved every, every trade they've made, but this is one that I definitely uh, endorse. Yeah, I mean, certainly now that we can look back on the the Doncic Young trade, you could make you can make an argument that that's you know a, a B minus B plus kind of oh, trade. Oh yeah, it's, it certainly looks like a good trade. I don't think it's I don't think it's on the level of the heist of the Schroeder trade by any means. Even if you were all in on Trey Young, which I know a lot of Hawks fans are, most are, um, you still give up a really good player in Luka Doncic. So it's not like an A plus plus trade in the way that, that the Schroeder trade was. Um, but that's one that certainly looks better now than it, it did at the time, at least in my opinion. Um, I mean, there were people that loved it at the time, and credit to them for being right, I suppose, on that one. But um, yeah, I mean, other than that. The that, was, that was that was the one. Great. That was the one extra one. Yeah, I mean the Jeremy Lin trade wasn't great. The the Dwight Howard trade was a disaster. I mean, you know, the, I, I, I wouldn't say that it was a bad value, but everyone knew that at the time, including them. They knew it was a bad value when they did it. Yeah, but that doesn't make it any better of a value. I like do think it does. I I I think it does actually. Uh, that that is the very rare trade where, um, pretty much, no uh, rhyme or reason could talk me into that being a bad trade just because they had to get rid of him and it's just I don't want to relitigate yeah. it but it was a it was a bad I agree with you it's a bad value trade but a trade that they absolutely had to make if that makes sense and that, that doesn't make sense I know it doesn't make sense but uh I will stand by that trade 100 out of 100 times and it worked out great the optics of sending him home with two years and like 55 million dollars left on his contract or whatever it was that's Maybe it wasn't quite that much, but it there, was a, there would have, there would have been a players association battle if they did that. That's all I'll say. Yeah, that's <laughs> I guess that's the part of it that is like in a vacuum. It would have been better just to send him home for two I years, agree. or just to cut him, and and let him go out to to get another job and, and let him 
go out and, and find another team like he did after he was cut uh, this this past summer, those that would that would have been a better option than taking on Miles Plumley's contract, moving down ten spots in the draft in in twenty seventeen, I believe that was yeah twenty seventeen. That's the, the, those are the the parts of it that make it a bad trade and make it a trade that not necessarily had to happen. I understand, I guess, the optics of the optics of the situation made it so that they had to trade him rather than just straight up cut him. But yes. cutting him probably would have been the better option. I agree. Uh, it's just kind and of I said that at the time. It's not like right now. We did. Like, I mean, we, oh, we did it on this podcast. We said that at the time on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it, it made sense at the time to just cut him, send him home cut him, let him, you know, let him catch on with another team, let him do whatever he needed to do. Uh, but it, it trading for, <laughs> for Plumlee, for the extra, the extra year, it was the extra year of Plumlee was, was the problem. Everything the else extra was year of Plumlee moving down 10 spots in a, in a draft that had some value between 31 and 41. Like you look back at that draft now and the value of guy, the value of guys they could have taken at 31 versus the value they got out of Tyler Dorsey at 41 like that's also part of this. Like that's a, you know, that the fact that they could have gotten some of those guys is, is a problem. Obviously they might not have, maybe they would have reached for Tyler Dorsey at 31, like who knows, but like that's, you know, that, that can be, if they, depending on how they had their draft board laid out for 2017, if they had guys in that 31 to 41 range who have gone on to be, you know, better players than Tyler Dorsey at 41, that you know becomes part of the the trade evaluation and that becomes part of why that trade was so bad but it, go, getting back to this trade and how good it was it's certainly not as good as the Dennis Schroeder trade from last year to 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 get off of his money to get Carmelo Anthony and a first round pick like that was clearly a very 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 good trade but uh this one is is still I mean this is still an a minus kind of trade and yep. uh you know, we'll see how it sets them up for the rest of the summer. If they can use 17 to to move up, or use 17 to move out, and they move down from 17 to 23, and then pick up another first round pick next year or the year after, like it just gets better and better. So there, it's a very good trade right now, based on what we know right now. And it's as long as they don't just totally blow it, which we think Schlenk won't because of of his history with these kinds of deals. He, you know, they've they've got a chance to either package him and move up for a guy like Culver or Hunter, move down and and pick up future assets, stay pat and and you know flip some of those second round picks for future second round picks. Whatever they do, as long as they do something, I think is is they're, they're, this trade is going to be viewed uh, positively for forever, pretty much. Yep, I agree. Um, and uh, even if they were to miss on whatever the 17th pick is, whether it be just picking that player or using it in a weird way um, in terms of a trade, I will still like this trade um, in a vacuum in it, on, on its own. Uh, obviously, you can't just ignore the what happens with that pick, but just the value of this, just the asset itself, all that evaluation, the money, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that goes into this trade, I, I think it's very, very good, and we'll leave it there for now. Um Jeff, we're going to come back, you and me, in just a few minutes to record part two that will be up later. But for now, please plug everything you got going on because it's a very busy busy time for you, um, probably even more so than me, which is kind of insane. Um, so please tell people all the stuff all the stuff that you have going on, including, of course, early bird rides. 
Yeah, uh, this is the busiest time of year this month and next month for me. Uh, June, July are the, the the times for me to 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 make my money, to make my uh, my voice heard out there. And so you can follow me on Twitter at JG Siegel. You can follow Early Bird Rights at Early Bird Rights on Twitter. Earlybirdrights.com has all your salary cap needs for all 30 teams. If you're interested in in how things go in terms of of teams available cap space, all of that stuff, it's all up there on earlybirdrights.com. We uh, we have articles coming out every day in throughout June covering the 30 teams, 30 teams in 30 days, covering their offseason preview. We will have all sorts of, and I say we, I mean I, because there's I nobody say, else We We's involved. not really a thing. It's kind of just We you. is me, myself, and I. Um, there, I have articles coming out every day on uh, covering all 30 teams' offseason preview. The Atlanta Hawks will be up there at some point. I don't have the schedule uh, handy or memorized, but the the Hawks are on that list. I believe I will do them after the draft because I obviously the draft is going to be a a big part of their off season. So I waited on the teams who have a lot of draft picks until after the draft so that we know we have a little more clarity of their off season. But theirs will be coming later on in the 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 uh, the month of June. I'll have uh, I already have two off season position rankings already up there on the uh, the point guards and the combo guards. Those are already live on, on there for you guys to to look at i'm gonna have trade analysis i did the the atlanta side i wrote for for petrie hoops the brooklyn side i wrote for early bird right so pretty much everything that uh, that i'm doing is is going up over there if there's something i write for somebody else dime magazine forbes.com uh blazer's edge petrie hoops all four of those uh, the basketball writers as well. That's another place I'm I'm currently employed. If uh, anything that goes up there and you miss it, I do a little weekly or or every other week uh, roundup on uh, on early bird rights, sort sort of just giving everybody a link out to all of the, that stuff. So it's a it's a real busy time of year. Multiple pieces per day from me going up all over the internet. But uh, you know, keep it keep it locked down on my Twitter feed and and on uh, earlybirdrights.com, and you can find all the links to that kind of stuff. Follow Jeff and all his work. Uh, we'll be back again. This show is going up Friday night, which is the one you're listening to right now. Part two on the NBA draft is coming probably like Sunday night, Monday, if you're listening to this, and uh, it'll be there, I promise. Stay tuned. Please subscribe to the podcast via the Himalaya app, particularly, and uh, any other podcast app that you'd like to listen to podcasts on. And we'll see everybody in a couple of days.